So in early Buddhist teaching, the treatment of emotions was very rigidly dualistic. There was good emotions and there were unskillful emotions. Kusala emotions were things like joy, happiness, sukha, kindness and goodwill, uh, metta, compassion, karuna, tranquility, pasadi. And those were characteristics that were again and again and again reified as goals and states that would inevitably arise if you practiced well. And very much your spiritual journey would be measured in terms of how often you felt those esteemed emotional states. On the other hand, if you experience fear, baya, anger, koda, lust, raga, sadness, or grief, soka, jealousy, isa, and ill will, bayapada, guess what? You weren't doing very well. In fact, you were failing. And with these characteristics, unlike the positive emotions, so to overcome lust, which is raga, that's viraga, and that's a state of very high acclaim. So if you don't feel lust, if you don't feel anger, if you don't feel fear, you are, in early Buddhism, you are doing very, very well. And so the goal was to make emotions subservient and to create a sense of control over our emotional activations. A cool, dry, um, a kind of state where we experience either joy or calm all the time, and that if we experience the agitations of lust or fear or anger or sadness or grief, we are somehow doing something wrong. Well, um, all this would possibly be tenable were it not for the fact that 20 years ago, a group of now uh, famous acclaimed neuroscientists started reporting their research into what's known as affect neuroscience. Affect means your emotional state, the emotional state of the mind. Now, the first famous book that came about around 20 years ago was a book called Descartes' Error by a guy named Antonio Damasio. And Damasio, through a series of ingenious tests, including with card sharks and other tests, managed to prove is somatic marker theory, which essentially I'm not going to... The gist of it is, and if you want to read the book, I highly recommend it. It's beautifully written, and it still remains one of the classics in uh, well-written neuroscience. But the idea is that there is no such thing as a rational decision without incorporating emotional impulses into it, and that all of our emotions serve very valid purposes in helping us uh, essentially incorporate all the different memory systems of the mind. In fact, the episodic memory that you have in your left hemisphere that you can willingly recall through cognition is one small fraction of all the wisdom and knowledge and information that you've attained. A lot of the information that you've collected in your life is stored in what's known as procedural and implicit memory, which overlaps with emotional memory systems. And these emotional memories do not speak to you in language. They don't arise in thoughts. Your emotional wisdom uh, arises to you in what the Buddha called Vedana, or body states, feelings. If you can't understand your feelings or your emotions, you are depriving yourself of some of the most important information that huge realms of your mind is sending you. I'll give you an example. Uh, at lunch today, we'll go get something to eat, hopefully. I will, I know. I don't know about you. And when I go someplace, I'll probably wind up at a, you know, a deli or something, and there'll be a bunch of choices. Maybe there'll be a bunch of different sandwiches for me to choose from. Now, if I when I'm faced with all these different sandwiches, and as I choose between, a, say, a tuna sandwich and a, 
I don't know, some tofu thing, right? And I'm not going to go through in my mind a logical decision uh, what I'm going to eat. I'm actually going to unconsciously through a part of the brain called the insulin, I'm going to read my body. And when my body trips over the tuna sandwich, it's going to go, ooh, that sounds nice. And as I get over the the tofu uh, thing, I'm going to about that. And I'm going to go with that. When you look over a menu, when you are uh, deciding what color to paint the walls in your bedroom, you feel your gut feelings. I ask my wife to feel her gut feelings because <laughs> my feelings are almost invariably result in ugly color choices. But uh, you get the idea. In most of the situations in life where you've developed any expertise, in your, if you're a designer, if you work as a writer, if you work in anything that has any creative endeavor, you are constantly scanning your body and going along with your gut feelings. And there's a good reason for that because the implicit memory systems which store all those experiences in life where you do something and it doesn't turn out well, versus you do something and it turns out well, a lot of those procedural memories are not stored in working memory, which then translates to your logical procedural episodic memory that you can willingly recall. A lot of that memory is actually stored implicitly. You can't voluntarily describe the situations that led to the wisdom because they didn't actually form narratives, but they are there nonetheless. Every time you make a decision based on your gut, whether to trust someone or not trust someone, whether to turn left or right as you're going home, whether to... All those little decisions that you make during the day where you don't overthink it, you are going by implicit or procedural, unconscious, largely emotional wisdom. So it plays a huge role in life. Ledoux, whose book The Emotional Brain came out about four years after Damasio, found out and verified not only the somatic marker theory that emotions and implicit knowledge plays a huge role in every decision we make, and that if we deprive ourselves of emotional inputs, our decisions become increasingly irrational. But he showed exactly the region of the brain that is involved with our emotional decisions. He located where fear act is activated. He located the actual neural circuits that we use to help guide us through life. Now, at the same time, also, Peter Fanaghi was coming, who was a psychologist, not a neuroscientist, but he was showing that the way that we bond with other human beings is we have an internal model of our emotions. And we use this internal model. We check certain parts of our bodies, and we look for signs that give us an idea of what we're thinking and what other people are thinking emotionally. And that is actually, Fanegi showed, how we deeply bond with someone else. I'll go into that because that's actually an abstract idea that's worth understanding. Uh, meanwhile, on uh, the California coast, a bunch of uh, other uh, neuropsychologists like Alan Shore and Matthew Lieberman were showing the connection between our emotions and how well we connect with other people. So your left hemisphere, which is where you think, where you're conscious, where you draw up your plans, where you contain and maintain the story of your life, where you have the plots, I'm here right now in my life and I want to get over there to be happy. All of those achievements, all those goals, are maintained in language, and they're all on one side. But there's another lobe of your brain that doesn't care about achieving anything, that doesn't care about you accomplishing a damn thing, that is simply interested in how securely connected am I right now to other people. And that is the underlying real root of our emotional life. We are deeply social beings. 
the way we survived, and I'll return to this theme, but the way we survived is not by running fast, because guess what? I, I know you think you do, but you don't. You don't climb trees very well. I certainly don't. None of you dig holes very well. You don't have tough armoring on your skin. You don't have claws, even. What you do have is the most refined capability to connect with other members of your species and to bond in many, many different ways to create lasting alliances, which was the entire reason why we have now become the dominant species on the planet. In Matthew Lieberman's work, he's shown directly that the root of almost all of our emotional activations at heart come from how well connected we feel to others. So how do we connect? We connect using one side of the brain. We connect with um, language. We connect with words, plans. We talk about, ooh, do you like travel? Yes, I love travel. Do you like Radiohead? Sure, I like Radiohead. Do you like sushi? Yeah, yeah, sushi's great. Like, oh, great, we're, we're well-suited, we're, we're, we're perfect together. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's, that's, the, that's the shallowness of the cognitive connection. It's a bunch of checklists, and uh, it has nothing to do with real human bonding. On the other hand, the right hemisphere is not thinking about travel plans or how well we fit to a bunch of checklists or narratives. What it's looking for unconsciously behind the scenes of every single conversation you have, you are scanning the other person's facial expressions, their body gestures, their movements, and you are looking for signs of safety. You're looking for the signs of what's called attunement, which means somebody is maintaining eye contact and values you and believes that you're important. And you're looking for signs of mirroring, which not only does that person take you in and is, thinks you're worthwhile, that you deserve their attention, but they are actively feeling to a small degree the emotions that you're feeling, and they are mirroring them back. They're mirroring them back to you. And this is essential in human bonding because human beings on our own, we do not regulate our emotions very well. We can regulate our emotions for a small period of time thanks to insight and mindfulness. We can maintain a safe connecting, uh, con container to hold emotions as they arise and be with them and listen to them and not act out on emotions when they're dysregulated. But we cannot lastingly regulate our emotions in isolation. If you want to drive someone nuts, there's a single step that you do. What you do is you drop them in solitary confinement and you wait a couple of weeks and you open the door back up, and what you'll have is a certified nutcase. It doesn't matter whether they're a Buddhist monk. If you have been deprived of emotional connection with other human beings, you will become emotionally dysregulated. So, the role of connecting through language allows us to together create plans, goals, motivations, align ourselves so that we're traveling in the same direction. But our emotional connections are the things that deeply make us feel safe, that other people really care, that other people emotionally are connected with us. And that process of linking emotionally is what allows me when I'm feeling lonely and I talk to you and you mirror back that loneliness allows my loneliness to find a level that I can be with it. If I try to replace you with Facebook, it's not going to work. Asynchronous attempts to, if we want to 
develop an interpersonal container that can help us deactivate our loneliness, our anger, our sadness, our fear in life. We not just need a wonderful spiritual practice that allows us to establish a safe container, but we also need to be able to vulnerably disclose our emotions to other people where they can see all of our nonverbal expressions. They can take them in, they can soak it in, and they can mirror it back. And when you do that for me and I do that for you, we manage to be with our feelings without repressing them. And yet at the same time, uh, we don't act out of the emotions when they're coming up in extremely strong, dysregulated power or force, I should say. I'll give you some of the basic emotions we'll be talking about. So fear, fear is the sense to, or the urge to, fee, to flee threats to ourselves and to our, um, uh, to any of our attachments. Our important attachments are other people. Anger is the urge to punish those we believe who have mistreated us or important attachment figures in our life. Disgust is the urge to expel a sensory experience. Joy is what Fredrickson called the building and broadening emotion that allows us to deactivate the survival-based emotions and allows us to relax and to feel good about making connections with other people. Pride is the sense that we have acted in ways that benefit the greater good of members of our tribe. On the other hand, shame and guilt is the feeling that we have done antisocial behaviors that have somehow been against the greater good of the tribes to which we belong. Sadness and grief are the emotions we feel when we lose an attachment figure, a figure that we rely on in some way. So you can feel a sense of disappointment when a musician that you look up to, or a writer, or a political figure that you admire dies, but if they weren't an attachment figure, you will not probably feel full activated grief unless you felt that you knew them. But if you feel that someone plays a role in that process of bonding, is a figure that you can go to for a reliable sense of safety, you will necessarily feel a sense of grief. According to Bowlby, that's a good thing because it's through grieving that we learn to let go of attachment <coughs> figures that have either died or have moved away. And in grieving, what we do is we write <coughs> away, we erase the internal working model that I have that person available to me that I can go to for regulation and security and attachment. And it allows me to find new people. Now, what happens if I don't grieve, for example? Suppose I lose a good friend and I don't grieve. What I will do is I will try to find somebody in the world that directly replaces my friend and I will project all of the expectations and all the beliefs of I had to my friend onto this new person and I won't see this new person for who they are. I'll give you a more concrete example. Have you ever known friends who go out of long-term relationships, they fall apart and then they immediately before grieving the relationship lost date somebody else? Well what they're doing is casting somebody to replace the attachment figure and they will not in any way see or appreciate the new person in their life. They will project onto this new person all of the emotional beliefs that they carried from the ungrieved previous relationship. So what I'm telling you right now is, I hate to bring you into this, but it's heretical from early Buddhist teaching and still a lot of Buddhist teaching, which believes that if you grieve, you're doing something wrong. In fact, yeah, there's actually a lot of teachings in the suttas where the Buddha said grieving is a mistake. And actually, I've sat with a lot of great Buddhist renunciates that I deeply respect, but they say that grieving is a choice, not a inevitability. So, in the gradual development 
of Buddhist and spiritual practices in the West is the bringing in, the incorporation, to my mind, of necessary emotional processes which are healthy, not detrimental. There's nothing wrong when you see on the news an act of injustice, whether it's racist or political, and you feel angry. If, of course, you use that anger to drive and direct you exactly at first how to respond, rather than feeling it and opening to it and allowing it to cause and create the conviction that something needs to be done, and you process that anger and then you make wise choices, that is healthy. If you, I think, get to a place in your spiritual practice where you say you can be with images of people being harmed all the time without feeling any anger, or you can have a friend mistreat you or a, a family member mistreat you and you don't feel anger, I don't think you've great, made great spiritual strides. I think you've developed a wonderful spiritual bypass. Mm -hmm. That's just me. So today we're not teaching bypasses. We're talking about ways to feel and incorporate our emotions in healthy, constructive ways. So, to continue, this process of emotionally connecting with people starts when we are born. We spend our first three or four years entirely connecting with the people around us through our emotions. They're actually messages we send. When a child sees a big, scary dog and it runs to its mother and it's crying, it's communicating with its caretaker. It's saying, I'm frightened. And when the mother pays attention, provides the child with attunement, and then offers the child a look of, oh, you saw a big dog, and then gives a slight smile. What the mother does is she's mirroring the emotion, attuning, and then regulating the response. And in so doing, the child learns to communicate with the world around it. And we seek this all our lives. In every bid for another's attention, while we think we're saying, hey, look at this funny thing on this cat video on Facebook, honey, which we do all the time. Uh, but what Kathy and I are doing is we're actually saying, hey, I'm bidding for your attention emotionally. I need to feel seen. I need to feel loved. I need to feel connected. And when we give each other uh, attunement, and we look at each other and we laugh together, what we are doing is bonding our relationship in an emotionally reliable way. So we do this all our lives. Now what happens though if in seeking that emotional connection our mother or our father is too busy or not home or too stressed out from work or not available or due to their own family structures was wounded in that very same emotion and has been taught that anger or frustration or sadness or loneliness in a child is not to be rewarded but is to be in fact shunned or shamed. Well what will happen is we will learn from a very early age that certain emotions are not safe to be used as tools to communicate with. And even though these emotions are entirely natural and they contain vital information about how well connected and safe we feel in the world, which are the most important messages, by the way, the human mind sends us, even though these emotions are extremely important to our emotional health, we will learn very young at life how to repress these emotions where our caretakers or the other kids around us do not tolerate. At home I grew up, my parents were immigrants, and so they were fine with fear. They were certainly fine with anxiety. It's richly in, embedded in the, the Jewish tradition that I am in the lineage of. Uh, they were fine, even my father was more than free with anger, but frustration was an indictment that as immigrants they were not doing well enough, 
And so if I ever sh expressed any frustration with a gift or something that we were doing as a family, it was seen by my parents as a deep threat to their success of their assimilation journey. And so they would immediately become very shaming and start quoting me about the starving children in Africa. I don't know how they came into every conversation, but the moment I expressed any frustration, suddenly I was being reminded of starving children in Africa and, and my shallowness and my ingratitude. And so it became very, very difficult for me as an adult to express any frustration. If you did something to me that I found uh, difficult, it was very, very painful for me to stop and express the fact that I was disappointed. Because it reminded me of all the rejection and all the feelings of disconnecting, disconnection and abandonment that I felt when I tried to express my frustration to my parents. So the earliest um, emotions that are poorly tolerated by other kids or by our caretaking situations create repression agendas that deprive us of very necessary emotional tools, our lexicon of connecting emotionally with other people. What happens when we learn to repress certain emotions is they don't go away. They actually create their own way of trying to come out. For example, if I repress my anger with somebody uh, in a work situation and I don't learn how to be with it, hold it, allow it, greet it, give it space to arise and pass, even then confront the other person in a strategic way that reestablishes secure boundaries. If I simply repress my anger, it will come out deflected into my relationships with other people. I will push other people away, entirely innocent people. If I repress a sadness or grief after an attachment loss, not only will I not see the people I subsequently bring into my life as authentically different individuals, but my sadness will come out at other times as depression. If I repress my fear in certain interpersonal situations, I will wind up with uh, panic attacks that will come up out of the blue. For example, a lot of us, I read actually more people in the U.S. fear speaking in public than fear death. It's a wonderful, wonderful study. What that means is that more of us have experience with interpersonal abandonment and shaming when as an early as an early child in a classroom, in a second grade classroom, we were called on and came up with an inappropriate answer and the teacher and the other kids around us laughed and we felt ashamed and small. And that created a desire to repress the feeling of vulnerability, to not ever again face that situation, to avoid any situation where we would be asked to speak in front of people. So as we de develop avoidant coping, what happens is the repressed shame or embarrassment maintains itself over years and the avoidant coping grows until eventually not only can we not ever raise our hands in a class, but we grow up to be people who cannot speak in front of groups or raise our voice when something is being done that's uh, unacceptable because we've in essence repressed our fear and it's turned into panic and avoidance. So emotions that we repress do not go away. The Buddha had his own theory called anusayas, which are repressed, latent energies that wait to rise up and grab hold of us and dictate our behavior. And that's exactly what happens with repressed emotions. As we repress them, they become what's called dysregulated. If I repress my grief, my frustration, my anger, my loneliness, my disappointment, any of those energies when I start to feel them in another situation or when they start to force their way up, they will come up not with the original force, but they will actually come up with the repressed energy 
of something that has been held at bay for years, if not decades. For example, we've all known people in our lives who have been through breakups after a week or two in a relationship, and we see our friend and they're distraught. And there's a part of the logical mind that goes, well, why is this person falling apart after a week-long you know, uh, relationship that ends with a breakup, that ends with a rejection? Well, of course, what's happened there, and the intellectual level makes no sense, but to the emotional mind, it makes total sense. It's easy to decipher. This person has in the past experienced rejections that they have not processed that they have not felt the pain of. And now, in this new week-long relationship, when they are rejected, the pain of years of being abandoned by a mother or a father or a previous loved one that they never bothered to attend to comes racing up and seeks to express itself. And what happens is a battle occurs where the pain of the previous loss and abandonment is raging in the body, seeking our attention, but instead, in the mind, the left hemisphere can't figure it out, can't make sense of it, so it keeps going back to the current relationship. Why did he reject me or she reject me? Why am I, why did, I thought it was going so well. And of course the reason is that the left hemisphere does not learn to interpret the emotional mind. So the role of spiritual practice is to bypass this tendency to immediately try to figure out and legislate and immediately try to contain our emotions through narratives and thoughts and by addressing figures at first externally, but to first learn to feel what's really going on. Your emotional mind speaks to you through your body as my emotional mind speaks to me primarily through the body. It speaks through fear, largely tensions in the stomach, sadness and loss due to the um, residuals of the startle reflex, tightness in the chest, a tension in the shoulders, a feeling of tightness in the front. Feelings that we have been repressing our voice, that we've felt unappreciated, that we feel unseen, feels like a tightness in the front of the throat. Anger feels like a rushing of energy in the arms, a tightness in the face, a furrowing of the brow. And of course, it varies from person to person. I'm just using my own emotional lexicon to convey uh, to you. But... The emotional mind has its own physical vocabulary, and if we learn to read it, if we learn to understand what it's saying to us, then we can actually begin to meet and incorporate its messages. For example, if I feel lonely on a Friday night, I am at home, other people seem to be having the greatest plans, and I'm at home and uh, have nothing going on, and there's that familiar feeling of a kind of heaviness behind the eyes and a tension in the back of the neck and a heaviness in the chest. And if I immediately go on uh, Facebook to try to get rid of the loneliness, or if I immediately try to replace it with a short-term solution, I would go, you know, you go on uh, I don't know, to find like people or, I don't know, some people now go on Tinder and look up a quick connection, have sex, and then ho the hope that the loneliness goes away. And I don't think my wife would be crazy about that, so that's not a solution for me, but <laughs> you get the idea. There's ways not to feel. There's ways, or people drink. People immediately go on Netflix binges. There's a lot of ways in the world to, detract our, to distract ourselves from the feeling of loneliness, which is speaking to us through the body. Assuming we don't do that, we then go to the feeling and we say, wow, I'm lonely. I feel this loneliness. And rather than react or repress it through distractions or acting out, what I can do is make a note to myself, I need to take care of connecting myself and making plans with important people in my life. Because my loneliness is not arising for the fun of it. 
It's arising because I don't feel that well connected right now in my life. It's a valuable message. It's saying that right now I don't feel that securely connected with other people. My anger is a sense very often in relationships, friendships, uh, interpersonal experience that I haven't established enough boundaries. It's a message. I've got to investigate how much I'm allowing this other person into my life, how safe I'm being, how much I'm opening myself up to this person. Is this the right person to use for emotional <coughs> regulation? Am I trusting too much? Am I being willing to talk about subjects that this other person cannot securely listen to and attune to? So these emotions are, again, of great importance. This is what set us apart from the Neanderthals. Back 200,000 years ago, when we were competing for our very species survival, the Neanderthals, which were going after the same food sources and were in direct confrontations with us all the time, they were bigger, stronger, faster. They even had bigger brains than us. But they didn't have bigger frontal lobes. They actually had bigger lobes for their occipital lobe, allowing us to see better than us. So out in the wild, hunting for food, they were vicious fighting machines that could get any of their needs met much quicker. But they were suspicious of each other. They didn't bond. They didn't learn to trust each other, and they didn't learn how to forge secure relationships based on emotional connections. We did. That's why we're still around and the Neanderthals are not. Because our ability to connect securely and wisely is what made the entire difference in our species' survival. So, my God, I presented a I have so much material I put for you, but I think what I'm going to do right now is going to go into uh, a RAIN meditation, which is our first line of dealing with emotions. Closing the eyes, reestablishing present time awareness, reminding ourselves that we're in a safe place, listening to the sounds arriving, but not adding any visuals and feeling the sensations of being in the body that's sitting, the contact of the feet on the ground and the buttocks in the chair and the arms touching the torso, etc. Feelings of uh, the breath. So now what I'd like you to do is to bring to mind an emotional experience of late if it's a traumatic experience I'd encourage you not to simply because working with traumas It's very important to work in an alliance with another person as soon as possible. <clears throat> so, I'd encourage it to be what the Buddha called uh, in the uh, Savasana Sutta, the mosquito bites of life, the irritants, the disappointments, the feeling that somebody's not listening, a squabble.
Now, normally what happens when we revisit a disappointing or emotional event is we replay the experience over and over. We turn it into a story that gets ruminated on. Ruminating comes from the word of cows chewing. And essentially, it's simply turning and spinning the story again and again. How dare they? The world should be a different place. So right now what we're going to do is we're just going to focus on the practice of greeting and creating a safe container. Later on, and today we'll talk about metta, other practices. But for this practice, I'd like you just to hold the person's image or an image, a single image, like a photo in your mind of something that triggers a sense of emotional wounding or disappointment or frustration, something that's irritated you. The first thing you might notice is in other settings in life when we're irritated, we can't get rid of the thoughts and the, the, emo the experience, but when you actively greet it, and welcome it. It won't want to at first reappear, but see if you can just conjure an image that creates that sense of frustration. It could be a sense at work, an unhappiness at work, an unhappiness with other people we have to interact with, a specific individual. <coughs> Holding the image and the next step is to ask a very open-ended question along the lines of, how does it feel? So if you're holding an image of somebody being abusive or unkind, a very open question, like, how does it feel to be mistreated? Or how does it feel to be not seen or not heard? How does it feel to be not cared for? If you're not feeling any expression in the body, start to look for it in the belly. Emotions express themselves in the front. The vagal vagus nerve runs down the front of the body and that's the kind of the central realm of where emotions express themselves so that other people can see them as well. So see if you can maintain your awareness in the very front of the torso and the face, running down from your face, down the throat, down the chest, the sternum, the belly, that area, and keep bringing up questions. And if nothing, if you don't feel any slight tension, maybe in the shoulders, hold a different image, and just keep on playing around until something that feels agitating, disappointing, frustrating, upsetting, And what we want to do is, instead of going into the story, to give a safe container for the feeling in the body, which means don't try to jump away, stay with it, hold it.
So the process that we'll be doing is very similar to what's called RAIN, in that we first recognize that an experience has been unpleasant or pleasant. And I should note that if you want to work with a happy memory, you can as well. So we recognize that an emotional experience has occurred and we allow the experience to occur in the body. We don't allow the story, we allow the somatic felt experience of the emotion. The older the wound, very often the more hot, strong the expression will be. A feeling of having been abandoned by a parent will feel much more painful than a recent unpleasant interaction. This is because early childhood woundings can feel, the emotions then can feel like the end of the world, and so when we feel them now, they'll feel very strong. An adult facing an unpleasant situation will feel less threatened, and so the emotion will be less extreme. So the work is to create a safe place in the body to know what the emotion is, to feel its energy. The third quality is to encourage investigation of it, to really become interested in our emotions. How do they speak to us? So if you've lost the feeling, bring to mind another experience or something that was upsetting or joyous, ask yourself the question again, bring to mind a triggering image with questions that activate a feeling in the body, then bringing the awareness to that feeling, allowing it and getting interested in it. How does this grief, sadness, anger, joy, tranquility, how does this feel? How do I know it? How do I know when I'm feeling sad?
Now for the final part of this process, once we've felt allowed and brought some interest to an emotional activation, we then send a nurturing message, acknowledging it and assuring it that we will in some way take into consideration its needs. So for example, if you brought to mind a feeling of disappointment after an unpleasant conversation, and you feel that frustration, we might say it's okay. I'm allowed to feel wounded, disappointed, frustrated. I'll see that feeling and I'll acknowledge it. And I'll consider, can I change the boundaries I have with that person? Or can I go and first talk about it with someone else and then express my disappointment? Can I seek important needs elsewhere rather than returning to someone who's wounding? Instead of pushing away our frustration or acting out of it, hearing it, knowing it, considering its needs, and in a nurturing way, a gentle way, just establish a sense of knowing these feelings need to be considered, need to be cared for. (laughs) 